Good morning, everyone. My name is Jo. I'm one of the curates here. Um, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I want to start with a little story, taking you back a few years. John and I had um, the joy of going on a holiday pre-Joshua, so it was, you know, actually a relaxing holiday. And um, we had the joy of going to Corfu, and um, we had this wonderful week just relaxing on the beach, as you do in um, Greece. And then the last day, we thought, oh, you know what, we're going to splash out. Literally, we literally went on a boat ride. So we thought, okay, we're gonna go and sail and um, do some adventuring and see some new places. And we, as you tend to do on these boat trips, you get off at a certain port and you, you know, sort of wander around and do the sort of tourist thing. And we, um, so we, got, we dutifully got off the boat and did this and sat in this um, little cafe, looking out onto the harbor, it was gorgeous. We were sat with our Cokes, just enjoying the sea view. And John turns to me and goes, Joe, that, boat, it looks really like our boat. And <laughs> you can see where the story's going. This boat was making its way out of the port, and I turned to John and said, no, I mean, they all look quite similar, don't they? It's probably another one. Took us a few minutes for the penny to fully drop that we could see our towels, actually, that we'd left on the boat, blue towels left on the boat, sailing away from us, stranding us in this random, I don't even think we knew the name of the place we were, to be honest, um, but it was definitely not close to where we were staying. So, I mean, the story doesn't end there. I don't have time to tell you the whole ending, but we did get back, obviously. Um, it was a bit of a miracle, actually, how we got back, but you can ask me about that in the car park afterwards. The point of the story is that details matter. We had gotten so relaxed, so used to being on holiday, that we had forgotten to check the time. We'd forgotten to check what time our boat was leaving, and we were sat as it sailed away. The devil, as they say, is in the detail. Perhaps this morning we can say the divine is in the detail. In our passage this morning, we're so... Often we're so relaxed, so familiar with these resurrection appearances of Jesus, we're so used to them that we often just sort of skip over them. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when you read them, you kind of think, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus appeared to a few different people, it all kind of happened in a bit of a strange way, and, and then we get to Pentecost, and oh great, the Holy Spirit, okay, great, let's move on. We've eaten our Easter eggs, we've done the whole thing, you know, the whole celebration, and we move on to the next part of the story. And actually in doing that, in sort of whistling through it, we can miss some of the crucial details that make all the difference. Now the account that Johnny's just read to us, it, it can be a bit confusing, especially when you start to dig into it. There's, maybe on face value, it seems fairly regular, but as you start to pull it apart, there's some really strange things going on. And I'd love to dig into those things this morning because I think they're really crucial to us understanding who the resurrected Jesus is. Firstly, we have Jesus arriving at random in this room, out of nowhere. He just appears. He doesn't come through the door. He doesn't come through the window. He just appears. That's a bit strange, right? Secondly, the disciples don't appear to actually know who he is. They don't appear to recognize him. They've spent the past three years ministering with him, and they don't recognize him. That's a bit strange. Jesus then asks them for some fish. Apparently, the resurrected Jesus gets hungry. That's a bit strange. He then goes on to tell them that 
actually all of this stuff that's happened, this dying, this rising again, this appearing right now, it means that you can go and preach forgiveness and repentance of sins to all people. Now that might sound a bit, that might sound regular to us as Christians. We might think, oh yeah, that's, that's the gospel. It's a familiar idea to us now, but to the disciples who, let's, let's remember, they're in hiding at this point. They're up in the upper room, still not really getting what's going on. They would think this idea is bonkers. Their hopes at this point were still dashed. They didn't get what was going on. It still looked to them like complete failure. Surely if Jesus was gonna redeem Israel as they'd hoped he would, he would have defeated the Romans, not just died at their hands. It didn't make any sense. There was a lot of explaining to do, and perhaps actually there is for us this morning to ask some of those questions. So I'm gonna dive straight into the passage. Firstly, we encounter Jesus. Jesus appears out of nowhere. Let's not miss this point. He literally appears out of nowhere. It is strange. From the outset of this passage, we can see that Jesus is no longer subject to the same restrictions that human beings usually are. And what does this mean for our understanding of life after death, of resurrection? What does it mean for, for our picture of Jesus? And actually, if, if Paul's... Um, Account is right in 1 Corinthians when he says Jesus' death is the first fruits, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of those who have died. What does it mean for us and our resurrected life? Well, according to the scholars, rather than a sort of vague sense of someone sort of hovering in the ether, resurrection life in the Jewish world of the first century meant a new embodied life in God's new world a new embodied life in God's new world. Now I've got a quote for us this morning. It is a long one, but I think it's a really helpful one to unpack what this actually means. So if you can track with me, I'm gonna read it through. It'll come up on the screen. It's from Tom Wright, he's a theologian. He says this, the new body which will be given at the end is not identical to the previous one. In an act of new creation, parallel only to the original creation itself, God will make a new type of material, no longer subject to death, out of the old one. In Jesus' case, of course, this happened right away, without his original body decaying, so that the new body was actually the transformation of the old one. For the rest of us, whose bodies will decay and whose bones may well be burnt, it will take a complete act of new creation. The new body, and this is the point, will belong in both dimensions of God's world in both heaven and earth. At the end of the book of Revelation, heaven and earth will finally be joined together into one. So there won't be any shuttling to and fro. The two dimensions will be fused together at last. At the moment, our bodies are earthly only. Jesus' new body is at home in both heaven and earth. Jesus' new body is at home in both heaven and earth. The Jesus that appeared in that upper room was the risen Jesus who had conquered death and acquired this new body that was no longer subject to its restrictions. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? But we sometimes dust it under the rug because we don't really fully understand what that looks like. And maybe it goes some, some way in explaining why the disciples don't recognize him yet. It takes them a while to sort of focus in and see Jesus as he truly is. He'd miraculously peered out of nowhere, they'd encountered him, 
and they still don't know who he is. Perhaps we can be forgiven the same. How often do I look for something different, so much so that I actually miss the Jesus that's in front of me? And what does Jesus do in response to their not recognizing? Well, does he walk out and get offended? Does he leave them and go and find another bunch to try? He pursues them. He keeps going. He, engage, he asks them to engage with his scars. Jesus shows them who he is by offering his physical body. He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. He shows them the wounds. And that might appear strange to the disciples. And we've already said, these, these are marks of failure, right? They're marks that, that say that, that this has been a failure of a mission. But Jesus doesn't avoid those marks. Actually, he's proud of them. He uses them as his identifiers. What does that say about him? Well, in showing his marks, he, and then he later explains in the, with the scriptures, he's actually saying that this, this, what you see as a failure is actually our greatest victory. They had been looking at things all wrong, and so often we do too. They look through the wrong end of the telescope, telescope, as it were. They thought it would be this long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But actually, it turned out to be a long story of how God would redeem Israel and the rest of the world through suffering. The suffering of Jesus, Israel's representative, the Messiah. He showed them where this had been predicted through the whole scriptures, from generation right through, from Genesis right through. The whole story points to this moment of fulfillment. And it could only end like this. That Jesus died under the weight of our suffering and rose again as the beginning of God's new creation, God's new people. It's why he has this new body. He wanted them to encounter his scars so that they'd recognize him. And yet, in the passage, they still didn't believe. Interestingly, it says this time was due to joy and amazement. Is it too good to be true? Surely it's too good to be true. Am I guilty of applying that narrative to God? Sometimes I lower my expectations because, you know, I don't want to be disappointed. What if God's not as good as he says he is? If we've got any Modern Family fans out there, one of my favorite quotes from Phil Dunphy is this. The best thing that can happen to a human being will happen to you if you just lower your expectations. And that's our narrative. So often can be our narrative as human beings. And yet here we have Jesus insisting that it's not too good to be true. He really is physically present in a redeemed body. Touch me and see, he says, the reality of my resurrected body. He calls him to engage with him, but you can't engage with a ghost. Jesus himself says, ghosts do not have flesh and, and bones as you see I have. He knows what they're thinking. 
He is at pains to point out to them that he has a physical body and, he, and we just can't miss this because if we miss it, we miss much of the promise and the tension that we have to hold as Christians. He goes even further to make the point when he asks them for some fish. It's a strange moment, isn't it? You can imagine this strange, strange moment of the disciples around Jesus and thinking, who is this guy? And he's just here and we don't really know what to ask him. And oh, okay, he wants some fish now, so we'll go get him some fish. After all, ghosts don't eat, do they? Jesus was saying in this moment, he was saying no, no to any dualism, no to any dualism of physical and spiritual. It's not either or. He may have appeared out of nowhere, but he also needs to eat. This normal act of eating is a significant part of being human, of being a physical being. Jesus is saying that I am still fully human and I am therefore still fully able to redeem your humanity. Jesus had defeated death in a different way to the other gospel resurrections that we read about. Jesus is not the first to be resurrected. And yet, he won't die again. Lazarus will die again, or has died (laughs) again. But Jesus won't die again. He's gone through death and out the other side into a new world, a world of new and deathless creation. And yet, as as we've seen, he is still physical. He's just transformed. And although this seems like a strange reality, a strange new world to us, where physical beings can disappear and reappear at random, this actual reality is reality as it always should have been. The resurrected Jesus is a promise to all those of us in Christ of what will be. What seems almost make-believe to the disciples and perhaps to us too as we read it, is actually the truest reality. It's our destination. It's the destination of all redeemed humanity. Fully human in all its physicality and yet eternal. But what does this mean for us now? How can we be encouraged by Jesus in this passage? Well, a Jesus that eats is good news to us. We tend to think, don't we, as Christians, that you know, the, the sort of the miraculous side to the Christian life means teleporting, it means resurrection, it means healing, and it, it does mean all of those things. They're all part and parcel of the resurrected life. And this account teaches us that we never need to throw one element out in favor of the other. However, there is a normality to this story too. Jesus eats some fish and sits down with his friends to explain what's been going on. The Christian life is not all spectacular moments of what we would term miracles. It is the business of sitting down with Jesus, of hearing his voice and obeying it. Whether that means teleporting from one room to another, or whether that means eating some fish. We don't need to worry about what it looks like We just need to sit with him. Personally, for me, these past few months, it's really been a kind of season for me that we Christians often describe as a bit of a spiritually drier season. Nothing has particularly gone wrong. There's not been any big crisis of faith for me. It's 
It's just that I haven't experienced the Holy Spirit in, in the same way that I have in other parts, other times in my life. Life feels fairly regular. I spend time with him reading the Bible and praying as I normally would, and that sustains me. But there's not really been anything to write home about. It's not been particularly spectacular. And John reminded me the other day, as, as I was talking to him about it, that actually a far more accurate gauge of God at work in your life is not necessarily how you feel at any given point, but actually is far more about the fruit you're producing, the fruit you're bearing. And we can often measure that as Christians by the fruits of the Spirit. Am I becoming more peaceful? Am I becoming more kind, more self-controlled? Now don't get me wrong, I'm praying and longing for those wow moments. And I don't need to throw that out because this is my experience right now. I don't need to live in unbelief and cynicism in the meantime, just because life feels fairly normal. It feels like eating fish right now. And we hold this tension all the way through the Christian life. And if we let it, it can be immensely encouraging to us that Jesus affirms this tension from the beginning. It's from fully, fully understanding the risen Jesus, who he is, from being encouraged by him, that the disciples are then able to fulfill the next part of the story, to be witnesses to the truth of the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I wonder how many times they would need to go back to that moment in the upper room in their minds, the moment where they saw Jesus for who he truly was, when things got hairy, when people didn't believe them, when they were out on the streets being mocked and threatened, they would have to remember the one who was truly real. And we need that too, don't we? We need that regularly. It's why we come to church every Sunday. We need habits of remembering our story, of remembering who Jesus is. To help us hold that tension of heaven meeting earth. You might even recognize a similar pattern from our passage this morning in our services. We come to church with our, our doubts, our confusions, our fears, our misunderstandings, just as the disciples did. Each week through worship, we encounter Jesus. We sometimes eat with Christ as we break bread and drink wine. In the reading and unpacking of scripture, we're encouraged and unable to proclaim the good news. And just the verse after our passage this morning, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to fill them with power. And we get that too. It's what we're doing every week as we gather. We're encountering Jesus. We're engaging with his scars. We're eating with him. And we're being encouraged by him. To experience the risen Jesus is a life-changing thing. It's the reason Sean and Becky are getting baptized today. It's the reason many of us have made that same decision. But we need continually reminding, continually reminding of the true story, the full story. We need, avoid, need to avoid putting Jesus in a box. He's either this or he's that. He's both. We don't want to miss the details that changed history and change the future. 